When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. You're tuned in to the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 55. The podcast is brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the premier rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota and owned and operated by the Jerry Havel, my buddy. You got to go up there and see him. He's got a heck of a thing going on. Find out more at pineridgegrousecamp.com. Give him a call today. And by Dogtra callers doctor's got a full line of dog training products there's a whole bunch of reasons to use dogtra gradual and precise stimulation control find the exact level of stimulation for your dog using their patented 127 stimulation levels rheostat dial honestly that's probably one of my favorite things about my doctor caller their transmitters are phenomenal and the control that you have is excellent and that's reason enough alone to go ahead and check out the 2700 tnb tracking and training beeper caller check it out today find out more at dogtra.com and by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Premium Performance Dog Food from Yukonuba is made with the highest levels of protein and fat to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog. Learn more about Premium Performance Dog Food from Yukonuba at yukonuba.com. And by Gordy and Sons Outfitters. 
the finest store for hunting and fishing clothing, sporting art, fine jewelry, and travel gear. At Gordian Sons Outfitters, they have what you need to get you to where you are going. Check out all the cool stuff they have to offer at Gordian Sons Outfitters by going to gordyandsons.com. And by Dakota 283 Kennels. I caught up with Greg Cronkite, the owner of Dakota 283 at Pheasant Fest last weekend. Got to check out the products, saw the new Dine and Dash, the Dash 3.5, the Dash 5.0. All of them were there on display at Pheasant Fest. Head over to Dakota283.com. Check out their kennels. If you buy a kennel today, you can use the promo code NORTHWOODS50DD to get 50% off one of the Dash products. The kennels really are the real deal. They're the right shape, the right size. I checked out the new tonneau cover kennels, which are a little bit more streamlined trim model to fit in the back of a pickup truck or underneath the tonneau cover. They got a whole line of products there at Dakota 283, and you can check them all out and more at Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway was absolutely a no-brainer. This week's winner is John Sullivan. John did two things for me. He sent me an email, which I'm going to read to you a snippet from, and he also sent me a calendar, which is customized with a lot of awesome photography that he took of his dogs and some beautiful scenery out west while he's chucker hunting in Oregon. John wrote me an email after I got the calendar, and he said this, I am a 74-year-old avid chucker hunter from Oregon. This was my 35th year. I hunted 16 of the total 17 weeks during this season. I hunt three GSPs always at the same time, and I take many pictures of them pointing, backing, and retrieving. It is my major form of recreation, and I love it. For me, it's all about the dogs. John, you are one badass 74-year-old guy. Thank you for the calendar. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being an example to me and the rest of the people listening. Keep getting after it, buddy. And you, the listener, could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Or send me some feedback or an email like John did. We appreciate all of our listeners. And for that, I thank you. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, quick intro today. We had Pheasant Fest last week. Big, huge shout out to Pheasants Forever. Thank you to everybody involved in that organization. I saw a lot of friends there, a lot of people that work for Pheasants Forever. It was another phenomenal event. Thank you for allowing us to be there with the Project Upland booth. It was an amazing event. I'm already looking forward to next year. I can't wait. If you haven't made it to Pheasant Fest, start making your plans today for next year. It's an event that you do not want to miss if you're a passionate upland bird hunter, conservationist, or fan of all of this stuff in general. Thank you, Pheasants Forever. One of the people that I caught up with at the show was my buddy from the Orvis company, Reed Bryant. Many of you listening may be familiar with him. He hosts his own podcast. He writes in a lot of our favorite magazines. He recently had a book published that we talk about in today's show. Reed's got an awesome story. I consider him a friend. He is entertaining as heck, and I had fun chatting with him on the Project Upland podcast. So without further ado, let's welcome to the show from the Orvis Company, Reed Bryant.
All right, Reed. Welcome to the Project yeah. Upland Podcast. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing real well. Thank you. Uh, it's Friday. I am. Uh, I'm, I'm. I'm upright, and uh, all is good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Particularly in light of the fact that it's been a busy, uh, busy season. It's great to see you at um, at Pheasant Fest last weekend, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a blur. It's been a while since we were actually in the same physical place. So, uh, so it's great to great to catch up and see. See your smiling face, Nick Larson. Always, always a pleasure. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man, and and uh, certainly the feeling is mutual. It was it was great to see you. I actually I buzzed in there late during the setup on Thursday night. I had I, I think I knew that you guys were going to be there, but I had no idea that your booth was going to be right next to us. And so uh, when I buzzed by and saw you, I was I was real excited and came over and we chatted. And uh, it was a good show. How was Pheasant Fest for you and the Orvis crew? Yeah, it was great, you know, and it was interesting um, hearing you say that and sort of that that whole sense of like not not knowing that necessarily what the presence was going to be. Orvis hasn't historically had a had a physical presence at um at any consumer shows or really any shows we have on the fishing side, of course, because that's been a longstanding part of the business. But we really haven't done it on the hunting side, and so to be there with a booth and and rather than being kind of an inconspicuous face in the crowd, just walking around getting a flavor for for what the show is all about, really having a physical a physical presence was awesome, and it it felt it felt really good. Um, you know, I, hard to quantify what the what the return on that'll be, and we talk a lot about that sort of you know being or just being a fairly big business. You look at these investments in time and energy and effort and money and say, like, what's the value? And really, I think the value in something like that for us is that we haven't, Orvis just hasn't had that physical presence out in the landscape in the way that, that, um, that, you know, it shows and whatnot. That the way, the way I wish, the way I, I think we hope to in the future. So just to literally have a, have a place where people know they can find some of the Orvis folks and touch some Orvis product and chat about what our, thoughts are I don't know what just to get to know us as a, as people and and as a brand is pretty cool and I feel like I'm giving you like the corporate <laughs> like spiel which, <laughs> which it, it sounds kind of gross with me saying it but it really you know being being loyal to Orvis and 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 loving the company I work for it, it it was pretty cool just to to be there and and have have a little corner of the corner of the landscape at uh at Pheasant Fest with a bunch of people it's cool yeah, I I definitely I can kind of understand where you're coming from because we had some of those conversations internally. This was the first time that we were there with a Project Upland booth, and you know we were selling magazine subscriptions, but a lot of a lot of what we were there to do is sort of that intangible, that hard to measure stuff. And I mean, I can't tell you how many just really cool conversations we had with Upland hunters, fans of Project Upland, and then people that were not that had no idea what Project Upland was, you know, it was kind of a lot right. of that. So I'd imagine that was, that was similar for you guys. And and you brought a really nice setup. You had the gear out. I mean, that had to have sparked quite a few, you know, good conversations with bird hunters. I mean, you had some cool stuff there. Yeah, that was super cool. And, you know, I was in a couple few years ago now, I was involved in the hunting product development side of things, not, and I'm, I am no product developer by any means, but I, I kind of wound up in this, circumstance where I was involved in product development for our hunting product in a significant way. And um, some of the stuff that, that we, some of the decisions we made then to really whittle down our, our assortment and 
start making some gear that we knew, um, how would I put it? Just really kind of reconfigure our, um, our assortment. I mean, I guess that's the best way to put it to say, Hey, what do we actually need as, as upland hunters, as waterfowlers, as, as outdoors people that, that really spend a lot of quality time and real time in the outdoors, what, what do we need? And if, if we can define what those needs are and build the best stuff and get rid of the fluff around the edges, you know, we had a firm conviction that that would make us more credible and, and, um, and, and just authoritative in the space. And the other thing is that we saw needs that weren't being met in up and products. You know, I was thinking about the waterproof, um, top bottom. We have the, the tough shell stuff, which no one made. I mean, I, you know, for a late season hunter that was into layering and, and, you know, was an active person walking around chasing dogs as you do in the upper Midwest or in places in New England where it gets cold and wet and snowy and so on and so forth, there just wasn't a product out there that was really solving that problem of what you wear in those conditions. So when we started to think along those lines, um, we were feeling like we were kind of taking a big risk, but then going to a show like that and having people comment on their perception of, of those products or for the first, similar to what you're saying, for the first time seeing those products and putting their hands on them and being like, oh, this is, I get this, like, this makes sense. I need something like this because it hasn't, I haven't seen it before. I haven't used it before. So from that perspective of like affirmation um, and again, feeling proud of the work you did, like I spent a couple of seasons really trying to help make great products. Um, so when you have someone come up to you and say like, Oh, I love this. These pants are awesome. Or, Oh, what's new. We love what you're doing. You know, it just feels good. It makes you feel like you're, you're doing something, which is cool. Yep. That's definitely kind of the, the stuff that we talk about. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when you can, you've got experience with products and, and you can have conversations with people and talk about, you know, like for Upland Hunters, credit to Pheasant, Pheasants Forever. I mean, that, that place is, that was the second time I'd been there. I'd been there once in Minneapolis and that was uh, the first time in Schaumburg and it's coming back to Minnesota next year. I'm already looking forward to the show. I mean, it's just, it's a great place to, for, you know, you guys to be there with a setup like that for us to be there. And yeah, it was a, it was an awesome show. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's unique, you know, it's very different than the other shows that I've been to on the hunting side of things. Um, not that there are really that many that are wing shooting specific, but they're, <clears throat> just the stuff that they have exposed to Pheasant Fest is really cool. Like the number of dog breeders and the, um, I don't know, just the, the people that are doing some pretty unique, innovative stuff. It's just a, not a typical, it's not a typical show. Purina having a big booth with some of the legendary trainers and handlers out there. Um, it, you know, it really is. I love that they've taken a, a perspective on what, what and who need to be at that show and what it needs to be for the consumer to, I mean, shoot, like when you get a chance last year when I was there in South Dakota and uh, that was the first time I'd ever met Delmer Smith, who's kind of a hero of mine, legend in the pointing dog world. I mean, to be able to hang out with a guy like that and shake his hand, get your picture. I mean, it sounds so like fanboy of me, but seriously, like to be able to do that, you just don't get to do that every day. So they've identified a unique um, a need and, and fill the niche. And they're just cool cats too. Like all those guys, folks, women and men with pheasant, pheasants forever. Just, they're just neat people. Yeah. I think you hit on it. It, it is a unique take because it's not just a, it's not just a business oriented trade show. And, you know, given, 
you look at the host Pheasants Forever. I mean, they're a non nonprofit conservation organization, and they are trying to appeal to not only booths like Orvis in Project Dublin, but to the Pheasants Forever member. And that's what, yeah, I think I think you kind of nailed it. That's what makes it such a unique show. And and then not that we need to be reminded of like how small of a world the upland hunting community is, but you go to Pheasant Fest and yeah, you see those people, and it, it it's a cool cool vibe that kind of shows that small world it's on display you know the whole weekend there yeah no i like it i'm 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 excited that we're doing more with them i'm excited yeah uh, across the board it's just a good it feels good being being affiliated being associated so looking forward to next year and doing it all again yeah definitely uh well we will we're going to circle back a little bit to orvis and uh we're going to talk about some more about their gear and and uh and really the company in general but first let's uh let's rewind a little bit let's talk about reed's upland hunting story now now this is it's kind of been told you've been on a few other you've been on a few other podcasts so i feel like i'm familiar with it but i don't want to assume that all of our listeners have heard your story so even if you want to do the cliff notes version kind of how did you how did you wind up an upland hunter and working for the orvis company yeah kind of a crazy serendipitous story but uh, the abbreviated or sort of truncated version is I grew up in greater Boston, suburban Boston, like 20 miles from the city, um, very much in a community that was not, there was not a hunting, well, take that back a few steps. Oddly enough, at the time I grew up, which was basically in, through the 80s and 90s, being a little kid in greater Boston, um, there was not a hunting culture there whatsoever. There was not a hunting community that I knew of at all. My father wasn't a hunter. I mean, he had been a little bit in his youth. My mom was very, like, anti-gun, not into uh, killing stuff at all. It just wasn't part of the, part of the story, part of the narrative where I grew up. However, oddly enough, it was very close to, in fact, the same town where, um, like Gorham Cross lived, Grandpa Grouse, who wrote Partridge Shortening's kind of an iconic old book in, in, among grouse hunters. It's right near where Tap Tapley and Bill Tapley lived and Bill Tapley grew up. Um, so it was kind of this weird place where there had been a very rich hunting tradition. Um, and then, when I was growing up, there wasn't. I knew nothing about those folks. So um, I just, I, you know, from the time I was really little, I wanted to be a bird hunter, and I don't know why. Like, I, it was, I was a very sort of sensitive kid, like not a kind of like bang, bang, shoot them up, whack them and stack them kind of kid at all. And, and yet there was something about the idea of um, guns, like shotguns for me were really appealing in, in an aesthetic way. And I, I, I don't even know where I saw them, like going to L.L. Bean and stuff, like on vacation, <laughs> you know, I was shocking, like, oh, it's so cool. And the other thing that I think back now, what I, what I think was a real appeal for me was I wanted to touch and, like, get a good look at these animals that I couldn't get a good look at. So, so I remember um, when I was little, I remember thinking, I remember, I think, saying this to my mom, being like, can we get some taxidermy in the house, you know, just so I could, like, look at stuff. <laughs> and I think she was like, I'm not even going to indulge you with an answer. That's creepy. <laughs> Stop talking like that. But but I wanted that connection, and I loved being outside, and I loved animals and nature and um yeah, just being in it, being having physical contact. So anyway, that being said, hunting was always on my mind, never seemed attainable, was not something that I saw an entryway into. When I was um, when I was in high school, I had a girlfriend named Carol McMurk, and she had a best friend who was another girl that I grew up with. Um, 
um, Amanda Gersmeyer. I'm throwing out names because I don't know why I'm throwing <laughs> out names, but these were the these were the people. So, and Amanda Gersmeyer's dad was a super cool um, kind of sporting gentleman, and he um, he drank. You know, it was this is a somewhat of a while ago, like before kind of the beer craze and stuff. And I remember he would have beer imported from Germany and he was always drinking like imported beer and he had guns that were, that he would, you know, on Saturdays or Sundays, like take him out and clean his guns. And he had, you know, mounted, I, he was just like, he was someone who was doing this. He had gun dogs, like he had German short hairs and no one had German short hairs then. So to me, there was this entry point. I would beg him to take me out and let let me follow him around hunting. And of course he was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure. You know, one day that'll happen. And it never really did just because of circumstance and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, that was sort of my first contact with someone that actually did this stuff. And he, he painted a, a very uh, distinct picture of what a, what a bird hunter looked like and, and, and was in, in my mind, he center sort of created this, this, identity, I guess you could say. And then, um, had a long and storied college career where I was in and out of school a bit and, uh, increasingly interested in, in fishing and, and, um, I'd always been into fly fishing, but got more and more into that really. And it got into like primitive skills, survival, nature stuff. So it was like picking up roadkill and skinning squirrels and doing all this weird stuff. And, uh, yet still had never had this opportunity to get involved in hunting. Then went, wound up after a period of indecision and ups and downs figured out that I wanted to be at this college in northeastern Vermont it was very very small very rural and there was a couple teachers there that were hunters avid hunters and um two of them in particular uh, a fellow named Dave Link and another fellow named Dave Brown Dave Brown was a serious upland hunter Dave Link was a serious waterfowler um uh, they had times they both had dogs but at that point Dave Brown had a Brittany named Toby and they made it possible for me to literally go out and follow some people who were hunting and see it in person. And, um, from there it was just a cascade. I mean, I took hunter safety as a college kid with like all these 10 year old farm kids that were like, who's this loser, you know? And like, and, uh, I just, I wanted it so bad. And that's the thing. Like when I, it was sort of this pent up, um, desire to, to, to find my way into this, activity that had been so long kind of at arm's length and then all of a sudden it was there and I I remember and I wrote about this in the book that the first time I you know went out with a hunting license and my own gun and went grouse hunting we didn't have a dog anything just like wandered into the woods and I remember seeing a grouse flush and it was probably way too far a shot and I shouldn't have taken it but I just remember like not even probably even aiming really just like shooting my gun you know at sort of the the some semblance of a potential shot at a grouse. And I remember being like, whoa, I'm doing this. Like, this is happening. This is something that I've wanted to do for so long, and now I'm doing it. And from there, just became captivated with every aspect of of the sport, um, from dogs to guns to, oh, shoot, everything. And really, the just turning into the longer version of the story, but... Um, the access I had day to day um, was certainly with those people that I knew in the community I was living in. But from a learning standpoint, I was just, I read voraciously. So from the time I was probably 19 till I was 
late 20s, I read literally everything I could get my hands on about about bird hunting, guns, um, dogs, upland stuff, whatever it was. And that was literature, that was books, but it was also, I mean, I just went to my mother-in-law's basement and had to clean it out. She was getting mad at me because I had boxes and boxes of old uh, shooting sportsmen's and double gun <laughs> journals and, you know, RGS magazines and up an almanac, like literally just boxes that these were my, this was like my encyclopedia Britannica, you know, like this was, this was the greatest resource. So along those lines, and, and I'll try to wrap this story up quickly, as I was reading about this stuff and fly fishing too, which is a huge passion. Um, I was working in education, working on a farm, um, basically this little, uh, kind of hippie school in central Massachusetts. So I was teaching little kids about agriculture, but I had access to all this land. So I was hunting my dog, you know, basically for some period of time, every day during the season, we had grouse and woodcock, woodcock on the farm, little duck puddles down the road, there were deer. Um, it was just awesome for me. But, but I was reading and reading and reading and realizing that I, as much as I wanted to be a credible, um, I sort of wanted to be a pro, you know, like I wanted to be someone that knew a lot about this stuff and my ego wanted to be someone who was seen as knowing a lot about this stuff. And yet I knew I was never going to have the money to travel to hunt. I knew I was never going to have the money to own fancy guns. I knew that just that was never going to be in, in my, in my personal narrative, my personal story. So, um, so with that, I was in grad school and I started, uh, went to grad school for a year for education and, and I was, um, I started writing and I remember the story goes that I sent the story about duck hunting that I wrote, uh, and I sent it to Gray's Sporting Journal because at the time Gray's for me was the pinnacle and still in large part is, um, the pinnacle of, of that, that blend of knowledgeable people, people who knew what they were talking about, but writing in a way that they were, they were telling stories, so the the writing quality was superlative, and it was you know a great sporting journal was publishing people like Annie Prue and uh, Tom McGuane and you know, these icons of literature, contemporary literature, who also loved to hunt and fish. And so I sent this piece off that I really had no hope of getting it getting accepted. Didn't hear anything wrote them again just to sort of say, like, hey, did you get that story? And got to know back that they were accepting the story. And for me, that was, like, the, that's where the floodgates opened. And so I started writing a lot more, just loved the feeling of getting um, written work out there in the, in the hunting and fishing space. Long story short, sort of met some people that put me in a position to get um, introduced to Orvis at a time when they were looking for someone to come in and manage wing shooting services. So destination wing shooting stuff for Orvis. And basically I was ready to make a switch out of education. My family was ready to move from the farm and one thing led to another. And I wound up in this job that I still keep waiting for someone to like shake me and say, you don't, this, <laughs> what do you, Wake you up, know, man. like this wasn't real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's crazy. And so I, you know, in some ways, um, in some ways I look back the last five years or, you know, a little bit before that, maybe six, seven years, and what what's transpired in that time for me in terms of the experiences I've had, what I've learned, what I've realized I don't know, what I've realized I need to learn, the people that I've been able to meet and talk to, the platforms I've been given and encouragement I've been given to 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 learn about this thing that's been a passion for me in such a significant way for all of my adult life. It's 
it's crazy. It's like, I don't, I, it's almost so much so fast that I haven't even had the opportunity to stop and look around and be like, whoa, this is, but I have these moments where I find myself somewhere in the world or, or, you know, doing something or talking to someone that's been a hero of mine, like literally, literally like a, like a, I was just at an event this last few days with a bunch of outdoor writers and, you know, Terry Whelan from, from Gray's has been oh, yeah. at, editor there for years. Like, I mean, see, meeting that guy and being like, oh, really? Like, this is, you, you know, in Spanish past, when you said this, what did they, what did, what gun were you talking, you know, or whatever. Yep. Like, I remember, and it was crazy. Like, I was talking to him. I think he thought I was kind of stalkery, probably. But I, like, I was referencing articles that I remember reading that he had written um, about, like, grouse hunting in Ontario and, and uh, I mean, those are, those were my heroes. So it's kind of like very quickly, I got this backstage pass where I was hanging out with my rock stars and being processing that has been a really interesting and, and, um, kind of overwhelming, uh, experience. It's been awesome, but it's, it's, I do have these moments where I'm like, is this real? This is crazy. So that's, that, that's the, the convoluted and, sort of frenetic version of the story. <laughs> that's the Reed Bryant version of the story man I love it <laughs> for better or worse it's, yeah no I you know I I again like I said I had heard some of that and you know that's one of the reasons why I like you because you're I feel like you're 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 pretty self-aware and like you are you know you're a good storyteller I love I love your writing and you know that's clear but but I love chatting with you too because you, I think you analyze things sort of in a similar way that I do. And you're very sort of like, you know, calculated in how you shape the story. And, and that's awesome. I, I'm halfway through, uh, Spanish Bass by Terry Whelan right now. That's a, uh, Oh really? Man. Nice. Yeah. He, awesome. he really, uh, he, he did a, he did a swell job with that book. I mean, starting with the history of Spanish guns. I mean, again, I came at it from a really, really novice standpoint, like just, I I knew what an AYA was, but that's about it. You know, I had heard some of the right. some of the names, but the way that he kind of lays out Spanish gun making, I mean, it really uh, kind of makes you want to own a Spanish gun. Oh yeah, and the thing that's cool, the thing that I thought was really neat about that book in particular, and I read it first when I, I mean, my my I shouldn't say my first, the gun that that's been sort of the gun that stuck with me for the longest is a Spanish, <laughs> excuse me, Spanish double. <laughs> which was kind of an oddball gun, but, uh, um, but it's, it was, you know, it was a big deal for me to get that gun. It was sort of the grail gun at the time. And it's, it's the one I won't sell, you know, it's like that gun. And, uh, um, to, to be able to learn about it, but then also to be able to learn about the Spanish gun trade is, is, was small enough that you could kind of digest it all in one piece you yes. know what i mean like yeah. the, yep. that book can cover it really comprehensively whereas if you looked at like british gun making or italian gun making there's so many makers and so many little offshoots and so much it just feels overwhelming like if i were to i mean it's actually an interesting conversation to to achieve some level of mastery or understanding of a gun trade i feel like that book really nails it for spanish guns whereas if you if you were even to consider trying to understand the British gun trade, I mean, I, that's such a daunting concept that I wouldn't even try. I would just be like, I can't, 
you know, and, and uh, you know, whose stuff. Like, well, Macintosh gets into it, and right. um, what is it, Jeffrey Boothroyd, I think, who's who's the, and you know, all those. There's all these iconic gunwriters about the British trade, but it's so dense, and there's so much. It's like I can't, I can't even go there. Whereas Spanish Best, I feel like, really nailed it and made it digestible for someone like you or me that just wants to know about those guns. Yeah, I certainly have a have a, a really increased appreciation for Spanish guns, and and a lot of things are like that. You know, like it sometimes you just have this sort of surface level, shallow understanding of something, and then all of a sudden you learn you know you learn the history or the progression of what makes it is today. And I think you just naturally, I mean, for me at least, and I think I'd imagine for you too, like that just really gives you a sense of appreciation for it. Yeah, big time, big time. No, I love that book, and Terry's a lot of Terry's stuff is is really. Um, yeah, he's just been one of those guys. His, his, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the um, full title, but the the Robert Rourke in Africa book, basically all about Robert Rourke's time in Africa, referencing his safaris, but also his just personal life. Like that was an awesome biography, and he's just a great, great writer. So yeah, seeing a guy like that in person, hanging out with him, shooting next to him, you know, it's like, whoa, really? This is. It's like I don't even know what to liken it to. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well. There's, there's some things about your story. I mean, again, there was a lot there, but I, I kind of had these light bulbs going off in my head and I feel like, you know, a couple things caught my attention. Like number one, especially the way that we talk about R3 in today's day and age, like we almost lost Reed Bryant to this industry, you know, like think about that. You know, you had this interest, you almost don't even remember where you picked up this interest in guns and and dogs and bird hunting, but like you didn't have the opportunity to really exercise that interest until so far, you know, college basically. I mean, a lot of people would say, you know, if you don't expose somebody by a certain time, like they're gone, you know, like you could have totally moved on and just not even, never, never cracked this world. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the other side of that is, um, I don't know. I go back and forth because hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, like you can yeah. always look back and say, "I I love to think." And this is so, Nick. You're catching me in in sort of my cosmic Friday afternoon mindset, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I like to believe that there are those things that are innately us, right? Like so, we're so I I don't know I don't know why, but I think there are those things that we're just born with. And having, I mean, you have a child now, and I think you'll see this probably as he grows older, but I've seen this in my kids that there's some stuff that's sort of uh, nurture and there's some stuff they're just born with. And yeah. you're like, how did, how did that happen? Where did that come from? And whether it's DNA, whether it's, um, you know, sort of genetic inheritance, whether it's reincarnation, who knows? But, but I like to think that if, if you want and this is a really privileged thing to say, so I'm I'm thinking about it before I say it, and I'll probably get called out on it, but I'll say it anyway. If you want, if you're sort of born with this thing in you that you want to see the light of day, I like to believe that if you if it's real, it will see the light of day, and you'll figure out how to make it happen. And that's coming from someone who's been incredibly privileged. So I, you know, and I think if you were born in a different country, or if you had circumstances that didn't allow you to to sort of scratch those itches that you might have, certainly that wouldn't be the case. So I hesitate even to say it, but I, the optimist in me likes to think that like, if you're, if you're out there, if you're listening to this podcast and you're 11 years old and you're like, man, 
I, I'm never going to have the chance to do any of that stuff that these guys are talking about. Like, I want to, and so we're sort of saying the same thing. I'm talking to myself in a circle, but I want to believe that, like, if it's in those people, that they'll find find a way in. And certainly our job, my job, your job, our job as the generation that has found our way in is to help grease the gears and 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 open those doors and make it accessible, make it um make it possible, bridge that that gulf and that takes a lot of different forms this being certainly this being one. Yeah. No, I follow you, man. I the, I have I have those thoughts as well and and you know, that's something that I think about too, you know, like I'm, I know law of attraction and, and all of that stuff. And I, I will dive deep on some of that stuff. So I know where you're coming from, where it's like, if you continue to think about something or seek it out and take action, you know, which is what you did. And that's, it's what I did with a few things too. I mean, yeah, I, I do want it realizing that it's you know you're saying like it's coming from a somebody that's that's been very fortunate and privileged but if you if you continue to pursue something i like to think that you know you know hopefully you can you can see it materialized and that's kind of that's kind of what we're talking about but the other thing that sort of caught me was something that i can i feel like i can relate to because you kind of indicated like you know you didn't have the opportunity right away and so like you you developed this passion and it was like, because you couldn't have it, you wanted it even more. Right. So it's like the slingshot effect. And then when you finally got it, you know, you shot off and now here you are, you're working for the Orvis company and kind of like, kind of like that. A similar thing happened to me with deer hunting, which is kind of weird because Mm -hmm. like I, my dad exposed me to bird hunting right away and he wasn't a huge bird hunter, but he made sure I had the opportunity. And I just, for whatever reason, I was hooked right away and I chased it. Well, my dad, my family, they didn't deer hunt, but all my friends were deer hunting in, you know, northern Minnesota. It's still kind of one of those areas where we don't we don't cancel school like some of the schools in northern Minnesota, but like but deer hunting is a big enough thing where every year it would roll around and like all my friends are going to deer camp and I couldn't go and it it made me want it more and more and more and and I kept asking my parents and bothering them and you know, finally they basically found people to take me and and then I kind of just launched, you know, on my own, like I've, I've been deer hunting ever since. And I really have like a, just like a certain fondness for Northwoods deer hunting that I think kind of stems from that. It's like, I couldn't have it for so long. And then you sort of, you know, just get carried away with it in a good way. Yeah, no. And I, I, you know, part of me takes great pride in that. Like, and I think, I think you probably have the same, the same, a similar pride in your experience with deer hunting, which is to say that it's, it's, and I struggle with this because there are times when I look at people that grew up in a hunting culture and a hunting family and, um, whether it's bird hunting or deer hunting, turkey hunting, whatever, um, fly fishing, same thing. Like if you grew up with it and maybe your mom or dad or uncle or aunt or whoever, grandpa was a, was really good and really an avid and skilled, um, practitioner of one of those, one of those sports, one of those, uh, activities, you, you probably accelerated through the learning curve really quickly and really young. Like when I think about myself, for example, when I think about myself as a wing shooter, I mean, like I, I've gotten better, but I, I never shot a shotgun until I was, I don't know, 18 years old, 19 years old, never did. So, so the fact that I, and then when I did, I was terrible, like truly atrocious. And so the, 
you know, I look back in that and I think about all of the time I spent just banging my head against the wall, missing birds and feeling so frustrated. On the one hand, I think about it and I say, man, if I had just been able to have this experience earlier and get through those growing pains and develop better habits and develop a greater skill set or greater understanding of, of the scope of the game or whatever, you know, had I been able to do that over a longer period of my life and develop some skills and habits at a younger age, I'd be further along than I am now. Conversely, I don't think I'd have the same, I mean, you and I both, whether it's for deer hunting, bird hunting, whatever the, the context is, to know that you went out and got it, like you, it's yours. Yeah. You, no one gave it to you, like you got it. And that is really, um, for me, that's a, that's a pretty rich uh, identity for me. And, and I think a lot and talk a lot about identity. And, and to know that you've achieved that identity by your own conviction or time or passion or energy or whatever, like that's a pretty cool feeling. So as much as there's that trade off of like, man, I mean, I think about it for deer hunting too, cause I didn't grow up deer hunting and I actually am a really bad deer hunter and I <laughs> want to be a good one. And, uh, and I, I just am like, I don't even know. I don't, I don't get it. Like it's, it's like someone's speaking Greek to me. Yeah. I was like, how do you know how, I, I, it doesn't add up. Like I don't, it doesn't always make sense to me where to go, when to move, when to sit, when to this, when to that. And yet, um, I know that if I put in my time, those times when I am successful, it, it's that much more meaningful. So it's a push pull. I don't know. It's a tough one, but I appreciate what you're saying, which is to say that when you do go out and grab it and learn it and earn it on your own, you know, that, that, that sticks with you in a, in a really strong and, and um, yeah, just a, just a compelling way. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And I, I do think we could, we could sort of get philosophical and we could draw that parallel, you know, anywhere really. It's like when, of course it's human nature, we want results fast and, and we want, <laughs> yeah. like we want to take the path of least resistance, but Right. Benefit of hindsight, like you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes that, sometimes that windy road is, you know, you, you get a lot deeper appreciation for something at the end of that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely feel that. <laughs> well, let's, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about wing shooting actually, cause you mentioned it and this is something that, this is a topic that you've discussed on your podcast and I always key in on this stuff cause similar way, like I, I didn't, I didn't grow up really a wing shooter. I was a, for lack of a better word, I was a partridge hunter. That's how, that's how, that's how we grew up grouse hunting in Northern Minnesota. And, and, you know, wing shooting is, believe it or not, it's like a relatively new concept to me since I've, in the last decade, I've started hunting more with bird dogs and, and, uh, it's something that I've taken a real deep interest in and sort of the game, the, the techniques and the tactics and like shotgunning in general, like working for Orvis company, you guys have shooting schools and, I would imagine you've gotten to talk to, you know, some good instructors. I mean, you've broken this down a little bit on your podcast, but what are the kind of the things that you've learned about wing shooting since you, uh, <laughs> since you got, got started in it? Yeah. So the big one early on, so I was always a, um, I, again, I don't know why, but aesthetically I was always a side by side sort of person. Like I, I liked side by side shotguns and that was what I wanted to shoot. It's what I wanted to own and whatever else. So, with that, you, it kind of lends itself to um, kind of that more historic approach to shotgunning. And, and so I read a lot about 
as I was learning about shotguns and as, as I was exploring shotguns more, I definitely was at the same time or in parallel reading a lot about dimensions and gun fit and mount and blah, 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 all that stuff that goes into it. So <laughs> I actually feel like in some ways, by virtue of the fact that I didn't have that early, I didn't develop a lot of bad habits, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. but I came at it really late. So so gun fit was always something that I, I kind of conceptually knew was important. Um, uh, proper form and technique was something that I always kind of understood was was important. And so as I asked questions and read and did all the stuff you do, um, yeah, I would say that by and large, I got to a point of understanding the importance of, of technique and fit well before I was able to apply it to actually being a good shot. And then the other, the other thing that I was doing a lot, which is detrimental, but I did it nonetheless, <laughs> was I shot a lot of different guns. Like I was always buying and selling guns or whatever and changing things, you know, I, I didn't, there was no consistency. There was no like linear progression. And I was really bad. Like, I don't, I don't know if people fully appreciate like how <laughs> bad I was. Like I was really bad. I remember when I first came to work at Orvis and I was a little bit, um, yeah, I sort of had my chops in these other, to, to whatever degree you can, or to whatever degree I sort of duped them into thinking that I knew what I was talking about. I, I, I knew I knew stuff, but I didn't necessarily do the stuff. So, for example, when I first went on a trip with Orvis, I was with my boss, Scott McEnany, and we went to shoot at um, a ranch in Texas. And it was Henry's birds and plenty of, um, you know, good dogs, plenty of open country, plenty of birds to shoot at. Like, it was a fairly forgiving environment. And I remember just missing and missing and missing and missing and missing. And then at one point... Uh, there was this guy named Jesse who was our guide, and a rooster pheasant got up in front of me. It was like a, it was just a, a layup. Like it was a crossing shot, but it was a, it was a big rooster, right in that like twenty yard sort of scope. Yeah. Um, right in front of me, just like perfect silhouetted against the blue sky, and I missed with both barrels. And I remember looking at me, and this is in front of my boss, who I was fairly new to, to be working for. Just He looked at me, he kind of was like disgusted. And he goes, <laughs> I thought, he goes, I thought you were a professional. And I was like, oh, oh. And it was that, you know, it was just like I didn't, I think what I've learned um, from having access to great teachers is putting putting all of the bits and pieces that I kind of knew being like that gun fit is important, that consistent gun mount is important, that, um, you know, foot position is important. But really what made the difference for me, and I've said this before on my podcast, and I really, truly, firmly believe this, is that A, our head instructor here, um, uh, James Ross, who works down at Orvis Sandinona, if you watch him shoot ever, if anyone's ever gets the chance, we're hoping to do some video stuff with him. It's so slow. Yeah, it's yeah. like everything is deliberate and slow. And I remember watching him shoot pretty soon after I started working here. And I was like, there's no way you can hit grouse in the grouse woods shooting like that. And he's like, trust me. <laughs> you, if you 
slowed. You have, what did he say? His point was always, you have way more time than you think you do. And I started to think about that and how I was super herky-jerky and would rush my gun mountain. My head was always up off the stock, and I was always looking around. And so that was a good lesson. And then the other one, honestly, and this sounds, sounds sort of over, sounds like an oversimplification, but I got again, the privilege, the opportunity to shoot a lot of clays, shoot a lot of clay targets, and then, frankly, to shoot a lot of birds as well. And the more shooting I did, the more I was able to slow down the processing of what I was seeing and put the pieces together. So what I mean by that is when historically, you know, when I would shoot sporting clays or whatever kind of early on, and people would say, like, okay, focus on the bottom left corner of the target. And I'd be like, what are you saying? There's no, you can't, that thing's moving so fast. You only have a second. You got to get the gun up to your face. Blah, 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 blah. You don't have time to like notice one part of the target. And what I've realized over time is that the more you kind of look at things you're shooting at and the more you have the experience of going through the gun mount and the, the trigger pull and whatever, if you're really looking at the target in a meaningful way, picking it apart, seeing the dimension of it, seeing the, the contours of it, seeing whatever, you you can slow it all down in your head and be much more effective and intentional in your shooting. And that's, honestly, think is, and I say this to my wife sometimes about other things, I say it to my daughter all the time about, um like, athletic whatever, is it's just strictly, like, repetitions. It's practice. And there's only one way to get that practice is to, like, go practice. And so, um, so I think it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting angle the way I came at it, which is I knew a little bit about, like, I kind of had a general pretty good sense of like what guns fit me, what my dimensions would be without ever having gotten a, um, a fitting or anything. I just sort of had read enough and kind of knew what probably was going to fit me well, but it was making the most of that in practice took a while and it's something I am really proud of. Not that I'm a phenomenal shot, but I, I always wanted to be a good game shot. Like that was important to me. And it, it's, I've recently in the last couple of years started to feel like, okay, like I, I'm getting to that point where I aspired to be. And that may sound arrogant, whatever, but like, I think in life, when you, when you put in the, put in the time and you set out to run a marathon or write a book or do a 10 pull-ups or whatever it is, you know, when you start to get to the point where you're like achieving it, it feels really good. It's just like, wow, I, 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 this is adding up. Like this is coming to fruition and, and I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had to just get that, get those licks in, get that practice in. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think we're all our own biggest critics. So I, I would imagine that, you know, in some of the early stages, you know, you're, you might've been tough on yourself, you know, and, and now, now that you've improved. I was, I, I was truly horrible. Like, yeah. <laughs> make no, like the, like it was bad, Nick. Yeah. It was really bad. I remember the first time I ever shot, we went to this, I'll just tell you the story real quick. Went to the sand pit and when I was in college and shot a box of clays and I think it was, you know, 12 dozen clays in the box or something. And I probably shot a hundred or shot at a hundred, like going away targets from like a rinky dink, you know, trap that was, that were like, like cream puffs. And I hit out of a I'm not making this up out of a hundred targets. I hit two, two, (laughs) 
<laughs> two going away targets that were like hanging there in space right in front of me. It was so embarrassing. Anyway, that's my story. Were you shooting? Don't tell anyone. Do you think you were shooting under them or over them? Now that now that you now that you're uh, you're more knowledgeable today. Do you have I any idea? I don't even know. I think <laughs> I was shooting like every which way except at them. All around them. Whatever I was trying. It was every every possible way I could miss. I was missing. I think. Have you done? Have you had the opportunity? You know, I know you mentioned James, uh, head shooting instructor at Orvis. Have you had the opportunity to do some one, you know, shooting with a coach that one-on-one format? Yeah, a little bit. I did years ago. Um, my for my birthday. <coughs> this is well before Orvis. <coughs> I um, uh, for like for my birthday, my dad gave me a shooting lesson like not he gave it to me but we went to uh yeah. Addyville East in Mapleville Rhode Island and took a shooting lesson like together and um that was a kind of a big deal sort of an extravagance for for us and um and I realized at the time that I was a couple things were happening I wasn't shooting well um the guy that taught us I think was fine you know a perfectly adequate instructor but um I was shooting a gun that was so poorly suited to what I was trying to do that it was almost like a an impossible task for him to teach me anything, but um, uh, James, yeah, I've I've been fortunate to work a little bit with James and just to be around people that are really good shots and sort of watch them and watch them teach other people. And um, you know, it's it's pretty as much as as much as I've learned. Um, and there's little things, you know, you pick up little tidbits here and there. Whether uh, I remember one fellow down at Orvis Sandinona saying, you know, on a crossing shot, uh, like on a, on a, what would it be, a left to right crosser, I'm a right-handed shooter. He was like, shooting a side-by-side, you use your thumb and imagine that you're like smudging out that target when you pull the trigger. So you're, you're pushing your thumb through it. Of your left like, hand, right? Of your left hand, yeah. so on a left to right, you're swinging to the right and you're just like smearing your thumb through that target. And as you smear through it, you pull the trigger. Like little things like that, that for whatever weird way my brain works, I could visualize what that looked like and what it felt like and what it meant. So there's little tricks and tips like that that I pick up. But by and large, it's it seems to come down to those simple principles of just consistency of gun mount, slow down, foot position is big. And, uh, and just don't, don't rush, just see, you know, your movements are fluid. Everything's dynamic. It's, you know, and it, when you find yourself in that space, as you know, um, and as probably most people know, and probably most people knew long before I ever felt it. It's like when you're in that fluid space, it just, it kind of goes, it works. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the left to right crosser because that when I asked you that question, I actually had this specific example in mind. I shot with an instructor last summer and yeah. and kind of the point that I was going to make is like, yeah, it's basically those little tidbits like clays are weird. And I've talked about this on the podcast before where if you miss clean and you're an amateur, like you might have no, literally, like I had just asked you, where were you missing those clays that were going away? You have no clue because there's no feedback, oh, yeah. right? Like it, it's not, yeah, the, it's not yeah. the golf ball that you sliced or hooked and where you get that feedback. Right. So, so left to right crosser, I'm shooting it and I'm missing it. And, and I must've shot at it probably 10 times in a row and like nothing, nothing's happening. And, and the, he was, te- he was telling me that I was shooting underneath it and behind it. And he kept repeating right. that, you know, he kept repeating that. And each time he would kind of tweak 
his explanation of like what he wanted me to do and it just wasn't working. And then he finally, one of his, one of the big things that he preaches is, is hard visual focus on the target, which a lot of instinctive wing shooting guys teach. But so I think he kind of was like, he, he was hesitant to use this on me, but he was like, all right, you need to, you need to put this target in like the way left of your peripheral vision. Like you need to basically be looking ahead of it so you can just see the clay in the left side of your peripheral vision. And I did it. And sure enough, you know, you dust three or four in a row. And it's like, it's just having that coach there to give you that, whatever that tidbit of information that you need. And then all of a sudden you start to see them break. And then it's just like, holy cow, I can't believe it. You know? Right. That's a really great point. And it's a really interesting point because it is one of those few things, those few athletic spatial kind of activities where you can't, you, you've nailed it. Like you can't see what you're doing wrong and it's incredibly frustrating sometimes. Yes. And that's why having a coach or having someone, even a friend, you know, do your, obviously do your safety diligence. But if that person is right behind you, basically looking over your shoulder at where your, you know, where your barrels are pointing, where your muzzle's pointing, where your swing is, tracking so on and so forth they can see really pretty um pretty accurately where you're off and where you're wrong yeah why you're off and why you're wrong can be you know a variety of things but to have someone give you that feedback it's funny i remember actually a guy um fellow who's who's been a long time good friend again from my college days uh ross morgan who's sort of a mentor just a wonderful lovely guy and his his brother was a competitive trap shooter. And I remember him telling me that they used to go out and shoot trap. Um, like their favorite time to go out and shoot trap was under the lights on like a drizzly evening. And the, the, um, the reason being that, or like a real heavy fog, sort of a misty drizzly evening, because he said you could see where your shot was going as it moved through the drizzle. Oh. And so you could get really good feedback about, and particularly under the, you know, under when it was dark, under lights, blah, blah, blah. It was sort of a perfect scenario that didn't necessarily happen that often. But he said it was just such a great teaching tool because you could really see where your, you know, where your pattern was going, where you were missing, where you needed to be, blah, blah, blah. So I've always thought about that. I've never really experienced it, but I've always thought about it as a cool concept. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I know now, like everything else, technology is is uh, making its way into this, and you've got things like the shot cam, and there's I think there's another one called Tacticam that are, you know, getting pretty good video that you can basically put it on the barrel of your shotgun, and it'll give you some of that feedback, and they've got it dialed in where it's pretty instantaneous. So I would imagine that anybody that's super into shooting, and uh, especially competitively, you know, they're using tools like that that nowadays. But yeah, for a long time, oh, I'm sure, like, yeah. And it's really, uh, it's challenging when you just have minimal to zero feedback on a miss, but they, it's, uh, it's, it's obvious when they break, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that is for <laughs> sure. And it's cool. I think back to that idea of like, um, the, the more you see, the more you slow down, what I've really loved is starting to be able to identify where you're hitting a target. Like, oh, I, I broke that target on the, you know front bottom quarter mm -hmm. or I broke that target on the back target on the back half or I centered that target or I, you know, what being able to identify, Oh, this is where I hit that target and being able to be confident about that and notice that is a really, 
it's a it, again it's it's sort of a a notch in your in your belt of like oh I I'm learning I'm getting better at this I'm seeing this differently than I saw it before that's a really cool feeling yeah yep definitely and you know the more that you know I think about the shots that you're making you know when we're talking about this specifically the more you know the better because it's you want to remove the uncertainty on you know when it's just hit or miss you're not necessarily you don't necessarily get a ton of feedback but when you can start to tell yeah i was i was on the front edge of that or i was trailing behind it i mean that's helpful information right yeah for sure um we kind of kind of uh got carried <laughs> got carried away there it was uh it was good right. good good conversation but i did want to ask you a little bit about your 2018 hunting season because i know that uh you're out in vermont and uh, actually we didn't even cover that, but it, we, it was kind of uh, evident in the conversation, but, um, I would imagine you did some hunting around home this year, but, uh, I, 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 uh, not as much as you I want to, <laughs> not, not as much as I should have all by right, any means. Right. And, uh, um, but I, I did a, uh, boy, I'm embarrassed to say how much I did around here. Not much. Um, did some deer hunting, did a little bit of birding, a little bit of duck hunting, um, yeah, boy. I mean, I, let's 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 not talk about 2018 around <laughs> <laughs> Too much travel. It was a lot of travel, and yeah. frankly, like when I'm home, I'm so again. I and I don't, and I try to say this all the time because I don't for a second under um, underappreciate or undervalue the extraordinary opportunities I have. But I do travel a lot, and I do get to shoot a lot when I travel, and and therefore when I'm home, I have two pretty young kids, and and um. Uh, you know, it's important to me that I'm not, it, it would be really hard for me to come home, you know, having been gone for a few days or whatever to come home and say, Hey guys, I'm, you know, headed out to Northern Vermont for the weekend or I'm going this way or that. And, um, so I try to really keep that balance and, and, uh, it's, I have a lot, I've, it's, it's a conflict, you know, sometimes cause I, I have dogs of my own that I don't hunt as much as I should. And yeah. I, um, you know, there's all of those, there's all those bits and pieces, but it's amazing to watch my children. Oh, I shouldn't even put it that way. It's not even like so much they're growing up fast, but just, I never, I always wondered with people that travel a lot for work and my dad traveled a fair, fair bit when I was a kid. And certainly I don't think it was like a detriment to any of us, but I always, I always worry about, um, just losing track of, of family and, and friends and like in the, in the hustle and bustle and, and being, um, you know, being in a, in a position where you can bounce around and do something you really love. Uh, I, I never want, I never, I always want to be very aware and very cautious of losing sight of how important the important things to me per, and this is not, this is not a, you know, across the board, certainly everyone has different experiences and priorities and, and constructions of their life. But for me, I just, I never want to push the boundaries of like, I never want my wife to say like, you're gone too much, you know, or I never want my kids to be like, Oh, you missed our birthday or something, you know, like yeah. I feel like such a jerk. So, um, anyway, that's, a, that's sort of my, to, to, at the risk of turning this into a therapy session, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I try to stay very like aware of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's finding that balance. Well, yeah, and you and I, we talked about that a little bit when we were hanging around at Pheasant Fest last week about, you know, when you're traveling, the email box kind of fills up and then you sort of know that's there. And then, like, it 
it draws on you, you know, that takes, takes mental bandwidth out. So like when you, I can totally understand when you get home, you know, the last thing you want to do is race off, you know, you want to be present, you want to be there with the family. So I get that. But I also understand like, it's, if we have this thing, you know, like where if I decide that I'm going to stay home and not hunt a particular day and then all of a sudden it's like a real nice crisp fall afternoon oh, like yeah. you feel like what the what am i why am i not out there you know it's just it's you know you got to balance all that stuff yeah no and one of the things that too that i think um from that perspective that's hard for me that i struggle with actually pretty actively is that <clears throat> because i because i don't do that as much as I wish I did. And because I, I don't allocate as much time as I, as I should to hunting my own covers, my own dogs close to home, it, like a sense of place has always been really important to me. And since I moved here, I haven't put in the time, um, to really develop a sense of place. And in fact, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I have, but not in the way that I have in other places that I've lived. And ironically, part of that whole, going back to that idea of like identity as a hunter, part of what that identity means to me is I've gone into the overlooked corners of my, my personal landscape. You know, I've, I know I've been to, I mean, you know how this is and I've hunted with you. Like you wind up going past a, a big tree out in the middle of, you know, grouse cover you or a rock or you find a graveyard or there's like, you build these relationships with place that are these, almost like in, in nondescript bits and pieces of, of where you live and you, you learn them, you know them and you see them through the seasons and you see them year after year and you, you kind of get to know your, your surroundings in a really intimate way. And I haven't, the one thing, if there's anything I regret is that I just haven't put in the time to do that here. And I love where I live and I, I love, and there's ways in which I've built those relationships, but not in the way I have in other places where I was like out there. I mean, that farm I mentioned where I used to live. I mean, I knew, I knew every inch of, of that 400 acres, like, you know, and it changed, but I knew it and I could talk about it. And in my writing, I could, I could see it really clearly, you know, and, and, and that was very important to me. And I, I felt that I need to kind of, get my priorities straighter a little bit around <laughs> here and get to know my place because I don't know. Place is very, very important to me. A sense of place is very important. Yeah. No, I hear you. I think that's probably not unusual for a bird hunter to be very place oriented. <laughs> that kind of, we could get carried away with that too, in a good way. And we could have conversations about covers that you walk through often and you're familiar with, you know, each tree and stone. And then there's that, that rush, that thrill of hunting a new bird cover, you know, it's kind of uh, those, those sort of storylines. I love how those play out every fall. And yeah, they really do kind of solidify your sense of place when you're out there. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. And that's something that I think we often don't necessarily acknowledge fully, but, but it's nonetheless, um, it's there, it's vital. It's part of the sort of part of the package and that's that's a cool thing yeah yeah definitely all right couple of things orvis here um yeah you know like i the way that i look at orvis i think is is i, I have some familiarity with the company now and, and you mentioned it like i got the chance to hunt with you and scott and charlie a few years ago and and i and this is a kind of a funny story and i think we've recanted it before and we've probably told you but i think it kind of 
I don't know, it plays into this conversation well. And, and I remember we were at Jay Dowd's Grouse Camp and we're all hanging around and, and we knew, we didn't know who you were, right? We didn't know who Reed, Brian, Scott, and Charlie <laughs> were, but we knew that you guys, we yeah. knew that you guys worked for Orvis and you were coming in to hunt. And, and I mean, you know, Jay's camp, it's a, it's a bird camp and, and it's nothing fancy and it's, and it, that it is what it is. So we're all kind of sitting around, like all the bedrooms are filled up and like, we're like, well, where are the Orvis guys going to sleep? Jay's like, I don't know. There's a couple of places on the floor and there's a couch, <laughs> you know, we're kind of like, right. you know, uh, you know, we don't know these guys. Like, are they going to be cool just coming in and laying on the floor? And, <laughs> and sure enough, you guys flew in and, and you showed up and, you know, it was kind of that, the initial greeting and, you know, a couple beers get cracked and, and before you know it, we're all laughing and you guys are rolling out sleeping bags on the floor. And, and, you know, by the end of the weekend, we were all best friends. And I just, I feel like that's like that sort of that personal touch, like getting to know you guys. Like I just, I look at Orvis in a way where it's like, you know, you guys are bird hunters. Like we spent, we spent the weekend in the woods with you guys. And it's just, when I look at the gear, you'd kind of talked about it earlier on the show. It's like, I know that that gear has been used. It's been worn in the field. It's been tested and, and I've got some of it and I really like it. So that's kind of a roundabout way of asking you, what is, you know, Orvis and Upland today? I feel like you guys have a, have a cool mix of sort of honoring the tradition of, you know, traditional materials and products for the bird hunter, but you also have, you've got modern stuff that is, you know, you're using, utilizing technology and you've got stuff that is taking advantage of that as well. So can you speak to a little bit about sort of Orvis Upland gear today? Yeah. And I, I'm actually going to, going to go in a roundabout way to answer that question. But I think the thing that you hit on that's some, somewhat my kind of crusade um, is is to describe to people or to show people who don't necessarily know us other than the brand, other than the catalog we get, we get in the mail, other than, you know, the fact that Orr is a super old company. It's a super old brand. And the current ownership of the company, the Perkins family, has owned, owned, owned it since 1965. And so it's been... Um, how would I say it? I, the brand has changed a lot over those years, and I think the perception of the brand has has changed and evolved over those years. But when I first came to work here, before I actually ever came to work here, when I first met anyone from Orvis, I met Simon Perkins, who's now the chief operating officer, Charlie's older brother, and uh, his dad, Perk, was previously the uh, CEO. His grandpa, um, Lee L- L- LHP, uh, bought the company in 1965. And when I met Simon, we were down in southern Vermont, sort of for a photo shoot thing, and I was tagging along with a friend. And we went out and ran Simon's string of dogs um, through a woodcock grouse and woodcock cover. Simon's got setters, trained them all himself. He guided wild birds for eight or nine years in Montana, grew up hunting around here, grew up training dogs with his, his dad and uncle and grandpa. Um, and when, when I knew that I was going down to meet Simon and his wife Alice was with us that day too, I sort of had this idea that, um, you know, here's a guy that can go anywhere, can do anything, can, you know, can cherry pick his experiences and probably is gravitating towards those experiences that are kind of the, the high reward, you know, sort of like going somewhere that's hard to get to shoot a ton of birds. Cause there's a ton of birds there, you know, hunt over dogs that someone else is handling because why would you, you know, because you can and whatever, whatever, whatever. And 
Simon and Alice got were getting ready um, in the back of the tailgate of their truck, and they're wearing like like shredded old Orvis chaps. You know, they had their dog boxes in the back of the in the back of the truck. He had probably four or five setters at that point in the lab. Um, never he never fired a shot that day. It was all about uh, kind of getting me or Els or someone else like into you know into the points. Very humble, soft spoken, gentle person. Um, who was out there thrashing around like in his own backyard in a place where I think we saw like one or two woodcocks that day. And it was, it was so telling to me about this company and about this brand and about who this brand is. It was like, oh, this is a guy that I would like go like sleep in the back of his truck and go hunting in northeastern Vermont with. Or this is a guy that, um, you know, or a couple that I would gladly uh, just go out and like run dogs in the woods with just to do it. Like no, just, you know, some, just to watch them work or, you know, and I remember calling him when I was applying for the job and he wasn't, how was the story? I think he wasn't home because one of his, one of his dogs, I'm going to get the story wrong, but maybe it was his dad's dog was struggling with cancer and like he was working on his computer from like sitting on the floor next to his dad's like very sick dog you know, and, and answering emails and answering calls, but like sitting there with this dog that was dying. And like, that's what this company is. That's who this company is. And I think that's been really misconstrued by some of our missteps in, in, in telling our story and telling who we are. So what you saw at Jay Dowd's of like a couple guys that like to drink beers and sleep on the floor and like, you know, whatever, eat chicken nuggets or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I guess we don't actually like eating chicken nuggets but nonetheless like like we that is that's us like that that is who's in these walls who's driving the the product and the brand and the company it's 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 that person it's a very approachable person and i think that um and passionate and 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 thoughtful and knowledgeable but but approachable and that's the thing that i think we haven't done a good job communicating so back to your um uh, back to your question when we looked at hunting product and we looked at that and we said, okay, you know, there's this really big disconnect. Because when you look at Simon Perkins putting on, you know, thrashed chaps and like an old strap vest and, and like, you know, with duct tape on it and, and having his collar transmitters or, uh, or collar remotes like strapped up and down, you know, you see that person. Yep. And then you see an assortment of hunting products that include like a leather wrapped cooler and uh you know an electronic vest to keep you warm and like there was this massive disconnect between where we'd gone from a product standpoint and who we are as people and hunters and so what we did was we um we fairly fairly uh radically chopped down the assortment and and as i sort of alluded to earlier we started to say okay what are the problems that we have that our endorsed guides have that are endorsed um, you know, sort of our, our more, uh, you know, our more noteworthy um, uh, ambassadors or, or, or field testers have, what are the problems they have and what do they need to solve? And we really started listening. And, and as we were listening and as we were thinking about, um, <clears throat> about what we wanted to build and what we wanted to provide the customer with, uh, the reality, it, became, it became clear that there were a lot of people that were out there who were diehard hunters who were you know, getting by with like a pretty good vest, a pair of Carhartts, a good pair of boots, and 
um, you know, kind of just making a go of it. And so as we started to say, okay, but how can we make that experience a little better? How can we give you, give you a product where, you know, when you're going out and hunting in eastern Montana for prairie grouse and huns um, for a day and it's frosty in the morning, your car hearts aren't getting soaked. Well, you know, but you, but you, but you're not dressing up in a costume that has no real value from a function standpoint, yeah. you know, and, and thinking about, and this is, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds, but thinking about like, okay, you know, you know how when you wear the right clothes for something and you feel really functional, you feel kind of cool. And there's, there's like, there's a bit of a, a bit of an identifier in that, like, you know, maybe you go grouse hunting all day and you go and your, you know, your brush pants are torn and you're muddy and whatever. And you go to the bar for a beer and people are like, oh, that guy's like was out there getting after it. Today. Yep. Or that yep. woman was out there like, making it happen. And and versus if you're dressed up in this costume that has no real application and doesn't get used, you just seem like kind of a poser. And that to us was it just didn't feel good. It didn't feel like it was aligned well with who we are and what we, what we want to be. And so we really, like I said, whittled back the assortment, built some stuff. So physically or, or, or kind of literally what that meant was uh, our tough shell stuff, which is a top bottom, a hard shell, waterproof, super rugged, durable, um, breathable um, sort of unit system that, that is good for late season, good for wet weather, um, just a cool jacket and pants, uh, some soft shell stuff, which we test extensively in grouse in just the toughest cover. Now we have some pro, we call our pro LT stuff, which is, a um, kind of lightweight early season, you know, for the sage grouse hunter, the prairie grouse hunter, the, um, early season, uh, quail hunter, um, desert quail hunter for sure. You know, that, that stuff. So we kind of built out this assortment to answer those, solve those problems for different people, different reasons, different species, different cover types. Um, but really it comes from a perspective of we don't, we don't want to have superfluous stuff in the lineup. We don't want to have stuff that's a gimmick. We don't want to have stuff that's just for show. Um, what we want is stuff that professionals are going to use and be surprised by be like, oh, these pants are awesome. You know, these things are comfortable or these last forever. You know, we love hearing that stuff that like, I didn't think these were going to be good at all. And yet here they are, you know, lasting me five seasons or whatever it is. So that's kind of where we've approached the whole thing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I didn't, I, I feel like I've been familiar with Orvis for quite a while, but I didn't even know, I didn't know that there was, you know, that much went into like the gear that's available to us today, you know, and I've been, I've been using some of it for the past few seasons and I really like what I have. And it's like, I think another thing that kind of, I don't think, I don't know if it surprised us, but it was like something we all paid attention to is like how, you know, inquisitive you guys were like asking about the gear and like what we like, what we don't like. And, you know, I remember Charlie asking specific questions, like, you know, if there's anything that you see that, that you don't like, like a button here, zipper there, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that's valuable to us. And so I don't know. I I know that like we all just kind of walked away from that weekend and like ever since then just having, having a, a really like that kind of a thought about, the Orvis company and the gear. And, you know, I think a lot of us still wear it, but yeah, I, yeah, and I, I love I, it. I think that, yeah, it's good. And like, I think Charlie and Simon both, and certainly, um, uh, 
Dave and Perk were kind of the next generation older of have have moved away a little bit from from the um the day to day functioning of the company and, and uh Lee Perkins, uh who's their grandfather, has has you know has moved away it's still involved but is is not like certainly not on a day to day level. And I think the thing that's amazing and the thing that's also under under um known or maybe under played is that those three generations of Perkins Perkinses that are involved with the with the Orvis company, number one, I guarantee you that there's not a family uh, not a family on the planet that has as rich a hunting history and experience base that those three generations have. I guarantee there's absolutely no way that there's anyone out there who can who can um who can speak from the wealth of days of field and dogs and so on and so forth that that family can do as three generations. Yeah. Moreover, um you look at you look at what's informed the current generation and that's a a family history that goes back <clears throat> really I mean shoot like like they say so Simon to tell you a story Simon shoots his grandma's um model 21 that's been restocked for him and she was uh said she there's a quote from Nash Buckingham saying that she was among the best quail shots he ever saw <laughs> and so you you have this really cool a family history of a grandmother or a great grandmother who was who was a you know a, a world class wing shooter game shot but also you have a, a a family history that's been so invested in running their dogs, like hunting birds, being out there in the field, bringing people hunting with them, sharing that legacy. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't see the light of day the way it should to my way of thinking. It's a humble bunch of people. They don't really talk about it, but then you have, you see, so you, you think of it and you have like all of those people, all you have a, a multi-generational history of people that are that are as as good as knowledgeable as experienced as many days doing it as anybody in the world, and that then you have Charlie, who's the youngest, who's Simon's younger brother, is involved in the branding in the company, asking so very keenly asking questions, yep. saying like, what don't what aren't we doing? What don't we know? What what insights do you have? What and, and so that degree of like inquisitiveness and humility, <coughs> backed up by the ability to kind of have a pretty good barometer for what's what's right, what's wrong, what's working, what's not, so on and so forth. Um, it's just it's it's pretty amazing. It's an amazing um, it's an amazing amount of of intellectual property that goes into the decisions that are being made as a company today. And when I say that, I understand that we make mistakes. It's not like we're you know it's not like the Orvis corporate office where I'm sitting is this like beacon of light on a hilltop with like quail squirting out of it you know it's not what it's not what what you know we make mistakes we make missteps but i think i think that we also know when we're off like and we and we do our best to to keep it to keep it real you know and that's that's why that's a large part of the reason i love working here is just that you you're not going to find a more legit hunter slash person slash outdoorsman than a Simon Perkins or a Charlie Perkins. And so, um, you know, to feel like you have that degree of, of support or backbone 
behind the brand that you're kind of waving the flag for. Like that to me is like very um, grounding. It feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. And you know, and the other thing too is like, I think Orvis, they improve their products a lot. You know, they'll take a look at a product that they have that's successful and they'll, they'll make some tweaks to it and improve it and come out with a new one. Like, a, I don't know. I've, I've seen that with the, the soft shell jacket and, and a few of those other things. And, you know, we could, again, we could go on too, like with how I just think, I think it's kind of unique how ingrained in, you know, specifically with, upland hunting wing shooting you know we could talk about fly fishing but this isn't the fly fishing podcast it's the project upland podcast but you know with your with your lodges and the hunts that you guys do like it's just you're not just making this gear and throwing it in stores for people to buy you know like it's there's a lot more to it than that and and one of those things which kind of what i want to talk about before i let you go is is uh i i've got on my bookshelf next to me here i've got the Orvis wing shooting handbook written by Bruce. Uh, oh, that, is it Bowlin or Bolin? Bolin. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Bolin. That was like, I, I really, <laughs> really enjoyed that book. But the, the, the point is like, you know, you're producing content too. Like, you know, your content for the hunter, for the wing shooter, like to help them get a better experience out of, you know, this thing that we're all so passionate about. And, uh, and, uh, the Orvis wing shooting handbook, I don't know if it's still for sale, but I, uh, I got a copy on my shelf. I enjoyed it, but there's a new book that was, uh, written by you, sir, Reed Bryant, uh, <laughs> Orvis guide to wing. Remind me of the title. I think it's the Orvis guide to upland hunting, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you, go. Look. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was, um, yeah. So that was a book I did with my friend and, um, co-conspirator Brian Grossenbacher is a photographer, um, uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I had it in, you know, it's, we talked earlier when we were, when we were waxing philosophical about, um, that whole sort of, uh, intention and thoughts become things. And I, I had wanted to write a book and I'm not a how to, I I don't, I don't read a lot of how to, I don't, I don't love how to, but, um, but I, uh, fairly early on in my time here, um, I noticed a few things. I noticed that there wasn't a book that was serving someone like me who hadn't, who didn't know how to get into upland hunting. Like there wasn't sort of a, sort of a, a, uh, any, any resource to, to walk you through the process or to give you ideas of how to do it. <coughs> and I was also noticing that there were a lot of lodges and guides and so on and so forth that I was working with that I would say like, what do you wish people knew when they showed up here? And it was yeah. everything from gear and, that they, you know, safety and etiquette and how to act around a dog that doesn't belong to you and blah, 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 blah. And so when I sat down to write that book, which was, which was, it kind of snuck up on me, you know, I said I wanted to write it and all of a sudden I was writing it. And (laughs) it was really just going through that process of what are the things that I wish I had known or what are the things that I had to figure out? What are the things that I still wonder about and and can take this opportunity to get answers about and so what i wanted that book to be is um it, it's an interesting blend because it's beautiful my friend brian who did the photography is a the best to my to my eye the best outdoor photographer working today and he's he's done a ton of stuff for 
Oh shoot! I mean, a ton for different magazines. He he did a ton of the fly fishing world. He shot for Yeti. He shot for everybody. Like he's sort of been there, done that. But um, but so the imagery is beautiful. But really, what it is is it's kind of like a a philosophical take on what you what the struggle is or what the pathway is of getting into upland hunting, and in that, what you need to know and what you want to do and what you don't want to do, or when to when to ask questions of of, you know, should I do this? Should I not do this? Was that a safe shot? Was it not a safe shot? And really, I think one of my um, goals as a person and as a writer is to is to talk about the stuff that's kind of uncomfortable or it's kind of not obvious. So, um, you know, I don't know, looking looking at, like, when I shoot a bird and I go up to it and it's not dead, like, how do I kill it? And and I remember that like giving me real anxiety before I was a hunter. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to. What do I do? Like, do I stab it in the eye? Do I stomp on it? Like, I don't, I don't want to do those things. You know, <laughs> is that right? I want to. Yeah. And and um, and and being willing to go to those places and answer those questions for me felt really like a big opportunity. And um, and so that's kind of what I use that platform for. And and uh, you know, it's funny. I I don't. I'm rarely proud of my writing. I don't, I, I, you know, as you said earlier, we are our own worst critics and I, I am really critical of my work. Oftentimes I look at it and I just immediately compare it to other stuff I've read that I just find so much more well executed or so much more thoughtful or whatever. And, and yet I go back to that, the open book and I can credit the editors with this somewhat, but, um, there are things in there that I that I feel really good about, and I feel like I was able to not only spit out some valuable information, but also to tell to tell some stories in a way that I felt was fairly artful and and pleasant to read. And so, um, so the so I guess kind of back to my point is that it's a book that. I feel like should be read. It's it's a size and shape, and it's pretty enough that probably it'll wind up on a lot of people's coffee tables, and they'll never read any of it. Which uh, <laughs> my friend Brian loves to remind me of. But nonetheless, um, uh, and so yeah, it was a it was a labor of of it was kind of like a cathartic thing. Like it was it was not only me writing my first book, which felt like a big deal, but it was also um, I hope utilitarian as a resource. That's what I wanted it to be. Now, my big problem is that I am the worst, world's worst self-promoter. So I, I don't know if anyone, you know, this is valuable, obviously. Thank you for giving me the platform to tell people about it. But uh, <laughs> um, it's just hard for me to go out there and sort of say, like, everybody, I did this thing, buy this book, come on. You know, it just, I'm not good at that. And yet um, I do see value uh I do see value in what's in there. I think it's, I think it's, you know, I'm biased obviously, but <clears throat> it's valuable information. It's pretty, pretty digestible. Um, and it's really pretty to look at. So check yeah. it out. Yep. Up yep, definitely. I, you know, for anybody out there listening, I think you are a fantastic writer, Reed, and I, I, I consider you a friend and obviously you're on the podcast, but, but I really do think that I think you're a really good writer. And I think, our conversation today has actually kind of lent itself pretty well 
to sort of sharing your story and like kind of talking about the your progression, you know, in in this world. And I think it lends itself very well to that book and and that book in general, you know, it could be written by anybody. I think that book, just knowing the kind of questions that I get from listeners to this podcast, your book, the book that you wrote is right in the wheelhouse of a lot of people listening to this podcast. So I, I absolutely encourage people to check it out and I can vouch for it that it does. <laughs> it looks damn good. Uh, yeah. I, I picked it up. Uh, I picked it up uh, off of the coffee table at Pine Ridge grouse camp, uh, our buddy Jerry in Minnesota. Yep. And, and Jerry's pretty particular. He won't just put anything on his coffee table because a lot of, you know, his, <laughs> his guests are going to pick that stuff up and they do read it. You know, there's some quiet, uh, some quiet rainy mornings. So your buddy Brian's right. pictures are, they're getting looked at, but that book's getting read too. So yeah, I, yeah, I will cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And I, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes for sure. And I, and I do encourage people that are listening to check it out. Um, cool. Aside from that on a, on a writing basis and, and I'm going to, we're going to let you go here, but I just want to want to give you a chance, anything coming up, any, uh, and uh, you know, you're a, you're a contributing editor. Is that what they call it for shooting sportsmen? I mean, you're, you're, you're writing is yeah. out there quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I've been very fortunate again, just to get some stuff printed. Um, yeah. So let's see. Cover your eyes has a piece right now. The current cover your eyes about Ronnie Smith's, uh, Ronnie Smith's kennels, Ronnie Smith's dog trainer in Oklahoma and his wife, Susanna Love and their kind of story and, and philosophy and practice. Um, Shooting Sportsman has a piece on the rack right now. Uh, it's actually a sad story. <laughs> it's a it's an essay story about a, my friend Dick Coffin, who I saw with, who passed away a few years back, and sort of his the end of his life, which was uh, which is tough to tough to watch. But um, but I think I tried to do some justice in that story um, yeah. and just sort of give a nod to him. Um, what do I have coming up? Uh, flurry of things, you know I. Um, Let's see, Blue Grouse piece coming up in Shooting Sportsman, which is kind of a story, kind of an info deal about Blue Grouse. Piece coming up in um, Cover Your Eyes about Joshua Creek Ranch, I think. Uh, hope to do more with Quail Forever magazine. And then the big one is um, I have a book uh, with Brian, again, same same photographer that did the uh, Dolphin book. have a book coming out in the fall, I think, uh, about um, – training dog training with ronnie smith and Susanna love so ronnie for those who don't know he's a very um just a wonderful man his wife Susanna is a wonderful woman and they're very uh their their uncle well ronnie's uncle delmer smith is that guy that i mentioned earlier who's just an icon within within bird dog circles just really neat family history um chair uh they're from oklahoma kind of animal whisperers, uh, horse and dog people from way back. And, um, and they've, they've developed a system for training pointing dogs. It's very, it's just, it's unique. It's non-typical and it's, it's very much focused on the psychology of the dog and, and ironically also the psychology of the dog trainer and looking hard at trainers. They train dogs, but they also train trainers. And, uh, it's looking a lot at sort of how we make mistakes that confuse our dogs and, and, um, and kind of whittling down to the bare minimum, what we need to do to be effective as dog trainers, uh, um, pointing dog trainers specifically, but a lot of it's just about mindset and, um, 
and uh, boundaries and clear clarity of communication. It's really being spending the time that I got to spend with them. Um, not only do I feel just personally extremely lucky to have, have seen them at work, um, but they're just super stand-up people that that have watched. I mean, that have literally watched Pointing Dogs for their whole lives and have seen thousands of pointing dogs, the best pointing dogs out there come through um, their circles. And it's, it was, it's really cool to see. They're just, they're people that, you know, and I see this from a few different dog trainers and dog people. And I'm not a, I'm not a great dog trainer by any means. I'm not even a great, I don't have a great eye for like, if you put me, you know, in the gallery at a field trial and said, like, what's the best dog here? I would be like, I don't, I don't know. Uh, they're all, they all look good. You know, I would, I would maybe know a little bit, but to be with people that have such an ingrained and trained um, knowledge of quality of what's good um, is pretty remarkable just to be around that. And it's based on just literally thousands of dogs that they've seen run. So, um, so yeah, so I'm excited about that and, and proud to be part of that process with them. And so we got some edits to do, but that'll be out, I think, in, in the fall. Um, awesome. And that'll be called, I can't remember what the title is, but it's basically <laughs> training dogs with Ronnie Smith and Susanna Lover. Well, shoot, man, I'm looking forward to that one because that last point you made there, you know, like I, 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 I knew that, you, you know, you're not a, a self-proclaimed dog expert, but like knowing the way that you write and being able to spend time with them, you kind of have to have your eyes closed and ears plugged to not know who the Smiths are if you do any like reading, you know, about dog training. So like just kind of knowing like what, what they're all about. And I'm, I'm really curious to, to read your perspective and, and kind of what you saw. I'm excited about that book for sure. Yeah, it's going to, it's neat. And it's, it's so much about, and this has really actually been hugely helpful and informative to me in the little bit of work I do with my own dogs. Is uh, <clears throat> it's just so much about the subtleties of our communication with our animals and what we, what how we, to some degree, anthropomorphize or or filter the lessons we're trying to teach our dogs through the lens of of the human experience. And if we can if we can get that out of the way respect our dogs as dogs and dogs are not humans and you know gun dogs working dogs in particular are we've we've taken the responsibility um of training them to have certain traits and to do certain things and then we sort of oftentimes get in our own way by not letting them um fulfill those those genetic needs and traits that we've bred into them. So it's sort of like, how do you, how do you let them rip and be their best selves and not get in the way of that by thinking that you're doing them a favor by letting them, I don't know, whatever. It's, it's, it's just such an interesting take and it's so simple, but yet we all yep. screw it up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I feel like the be- the best dog training advice is always that, you know, when you hear it, it's like, that's so simple, but then, you know, right, if right. you're, if you're yeah, fortunate no, enough really, to make it work, it, it typically works. Yeah. Consistency and simplicity seem yeah. to be the, the magic sauce yeah. for sure. For sure, man. Well, Hey, we didn't, we didn't even delve too deep into uh bird dogs and double guns, but I think, you know what that means? We'll, uh, we'll have to have you back on. So maybe, uh, we'll, uh, maybe, uh, we can, we can find an excuse to, uh, get our paths to cross this fall and you can, uh, inspire some more, some more writing and, and then, uh, we'll talk uh, again on the podcast. Yeah, no, I'd love it. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate the opportunity. I got to get you on my podcast too, um, and uh, and we can continue the conversation. So it's always nice to um, 
for for listeners who haven't met Nick Larson, he's one of the sweetest guys out there. So um, <laughs> stop make it. Sure you, <laughs> make, make sure you send him some fan mail. No, it's really true. So I appreciate the time and uh and um yeah, I look forward to talking to you more soon. All right, buddy. Anytime you say the word, uh great to catch up with you last week. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Have a great weekend, man. Yeah, you too as well. Talk to you soon. All right, see ya. You've been listening to the Project Upland Podcast. As your host, Nick Larson, I'd like to thank you for tuning in each and every week. And I'd like to thank our partners on the Project Upland Podcast, bringing you each and every episode of the show. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Gordian Sons Outfitters, Yukonuba Premium Dog Food, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Remember, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast post, or send us some email. I'd love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email, nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Don't forget to head over to projectupland.com to see everything else we've been up to, films, blogs, articles, gear reviews, and much, much more. Head over to projectupland.com. That's it for this week's episode of the Project Up and Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you on the next show. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.